0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. As 2020 winds down and we prepare for the inauguration of a new president, I wanted to revisit a few conversations we've had on the show that really stood out to me. The first is from back in May, still relatively early in the pandemic, but at the point where few things were clear we are going to be social distancing for quite some time to come, and masks were the key to preventing the spread of COVID-19. But it was also clear that opinions about mask wearing and the restrictions put in place at the state level all across the country were extremely partisan. I'd been feeling very unsatisfied with the way in which politics in the time of a pandemic had been covered. We had a lot of data about what Americans thought about how their political leaders were or weren't Handling the crisis, and what activities they were and weren't comfortable doing. But we were lacking the ambiguity and internal conflict that so many people were and still are feeling. I wanted to understand not just what people say they are worried or not worried about, but how people assess risk and how their political leanings factor into all of it. I also wanted to understand how a pandemic, something that theoretically should be a national unifier, is dividing us along familiar political lines. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business. He's also the author of Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he spent a lot of time thinking about what brings us together and what drives us apart.
0: So there's a lot of evidence, not just from history, but even from social psychology experiments, that that an attack by a foreign adversary binds people together, draws them together. Uh, There's research by uh, Joe Henrich at Harvard and others that um, even people whose countries were at war when they were teenagers, they're more cooperative in in economic games 20 years later. So foreign attack we know has this powerful effect, but this is not a foreign attack. Conversely, a pandemic historically doesn't bring people together. It makes them afraid of each other. Uh, There's our sources of contagion and especially if there's starvation, then it's really, you know, zero-sum game. Thank God we're not starving and, and this disease is not so deadly. So this is not like a classic pandemic either. It's in between those two. And we started off much more with a sense of unity, but now we're into the more divided phase.
1: We are separating ourselves into two camps, really ideologically, Republicans feeling one way and Democrats the other. Why... Does it break down so cleanly along those lines?
0: Well so the so the first a piece of nuance I'd add to that, is you, with politics in America these days, you always have to distinguish between what the average person thinks, mm-hmm. which we have no idea of on, other than survey data, and what we see on social media and mainstream media. And the media environment has changed so much since the mid 20th century with cable TV and then especially with social media. Um, and basically, you know, America's has been a pretty moderate country historically, But the the extremes now have a megaphone. We've amplified the voices from the extremes. So, you know, the survey research shows that most Americans, if it's a question about Donald Trump, yes, they're totally divided. But if it's a question about the pandemic, on average, you know, there's a lot of agreement. But that's not what we see. So what we see in terms of lockdown protests and things like that, yeah, it's incredibly divided. Um, And that is because we have this really bad culture war. We have this negative partisanship in which our politics is much, more about who we hate than about what we like. And unfortunately, the pandemic played right into that here.
1: Except there is this one thing, which is governors almost across the board are seeing real spikes in their popularity. And this Mm -hmm. is true if you're a blue governor in a red state or a red governor in a blue state. The one person who opinions of haven't changed at all (laughs) is Donald Trump. So is this really a Donald Trump issue? Or is this our partisan politics
0: So let me put in a little bit of of social and evolutionary psychology Mm -hmm. here, which is that human beings have this amazing form of sociality. So, you know, deer are not actually really that social, they just kind of flock together in herds so that this, you know, only the slowest one gets eaten. Um, bees at the other end of the spectrum are hive creatures. They have to live in hives and they cooperate like crazy. I mean, it's, the hive is really like the, the animal. Humans are different. We're, we're in between, we're really flexible. So we can come together at whatever level is needed. And so we have this recursive structure um, after Pearl Harbor You know, you get the whole country coming together to fight the, you know, the absolutely perfect evil enemy, Uh, but we have this ability to come together or separate at multiple levels even at the same time. So we're not coming together nationally uh, anymore since mid-April. I think that's when things really split up. Um, But we can come together at the state level, and then we could be divided on some other level, and then we can come together in a, you know, in a company or in a church community. So you have to look at different levels of sociality nested together. And it's a fascinating time to be a social scientist.
1: The real question I, I, I wanted to get some understanding about is how this exposes the way that human beings assess risk.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: what are those differences? How does somebody wake up in the morning and say, oh, there's no, I'm not leaving my house, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for years. And a person who lives right next door to me says, this is, this is not a big deal. I don't need to wear a mask. I'm fine. Just let me do what I want to do. Can you speak to some of that? Like how sure. the the brain is sort of processing these risks and, and how you think then that's going to impact the way we actually move through this crisis.
0: So I always find it helpful to start with the assumption that we're perfectly rational information processors. And then you see how far away reality is from that assumption. So let's start with the, you know, the idea that we're perfectly rational and, and all we care about is achieving the optimum outcome for ourself. Well, there's a whole huge field in cognitive psychology that's looked at all the biases, the errors we make, and so, you know, we're afraid of plane travel if a plane crashes, uh, but, you know, we're not so afraid of of traveling by car, uh, because it's not as salient, it's not as vivid. Um, So, that's just taking each person as an individual risk assessor, and there's like 30 or 40 different biases. There's a huge amount of research on how individuals get it wrong. Okay, but now let's really mess things up. Let's make those individuals social. And so we we we're incredibly social creatures. We look to everyone else to see what to do. So, you know, I'm here in New York, I teach at NYU, and I remember when I w- you know when I was riding the subway like back when this was beginning, you know, I brought a mask with me, but I felt stupid. I felt foolish being the only one wearing it, so I didn't wear it. And then there was like one day when it flipped and then, you know, most people were were wearing it. So that so here we're social, but not yet tribal. We just care what others think of us. And then let's go to the third level, like, you know, DEFCON 3 for social biases, which is, now let's add in my, my group versus yours, team versus team, and there's a war on, and it's a war for the survival of whatever we hold sacred. And so um, if your side says, oh, the virus is nothing to worry about. Well, that's going to make me say, what? What about all this other evidence? You're wrong, you know, or if or if you know if your side says, um, you know, oh, we've you know we've got to lock down. We've got to stop all you know all social activity. Um then I'm going to say, what? What are you talking about? What about Sweden or whatever? So we're incredibly social creatures. And I think the key to understanding the the craziness and this destructiveness and the foolishness of the American response, I mean, there's a lot of institutional failures. But if you want to look at the weirdness of the way people are, are reacting. I would say, look at those different levels of of sociality that warp our thinking about risk.
1: In an ideal setting, then, how would a leader respond to this?
0: So one of the most important principles, and you see this in every, you know, leadership book or article, is you must be completely transparent, honest, and reliable. Um, It's hard to gain trust, and it's easy to lose it. And so the fiasco about recommending that people not wear masks um, by various organizations, that was really foolish. I think that cost a lot of credibility. That's just an example of the sort of thing that you should not do. Um, you know, if they did it for the ulterior motive of preserving the masks for doctors, I understand why they did it, but I think it was very damaging. So you have to be completely honest and transparent. And, you know, that's where I think at the national level, uh, certainly the, that leader has gotten very, very bad marks, whereas many of the governors have gotten very high ratings on that. Um, and then the other really really key thing is you are the best place person to activate the one for all all for one response so I said before that we're like hive creatures where we can be like bees in a hive and we love that we love to be called together uh, to come together to work on some noble project and so if the leader uh, uses elevating language and speaks to our noble ideals um, and emphasizes our shared history, and we're all in the same boat, we're going to work together to a glorious future. So leadership should be inspiring. It should be honest. It should put aside, specifically put aside petty squabbles, speak to people's nobler motives.
1: And yet this nobler motive, right, this gets to the very heart, it seems to me, what it means to be an American, this idea of Freedom from and freedom to, right? Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. want a freedom from getting sick, which means I need you, Jonathan, not to sneeze on me or mm-hmm. to come to work if you're sick. But I also need freedom to do what I want, right? If I've, I want to ride without a seatbelt or if I want to smoke or do those things, I should be able to do them
0: just like we all have the same five different kinds of taste receptors on our tongue it's it's the same thing with our moral sense we all have built in a, a, a sensitivity receptivity to stimuli or arguments about care fairness liberty loyalty authority and sanctity it's like the taste buds of the moral sense and there are differences some people are born you know with with extra sensitivity to care and they're really sensitive to you know animal suffering when they're kids Um, And those people tend to be attracted more to left-wing causes, and left-wing movements tend to emphasize care, suffering, pain, things like that, empathy. Um, So there are some reasons why individuals, even siblings in the same family, will gravitate one way or another. But then there's a whole level of manipulation by moral entrepreneurs. So all Americans believe in freedom. You know, as you were saying, you can spin it either way. All Americans believe in freedom. But it's only once some you know some talking head or some activist or somebody on on a cable news show says you know i have a god-given right to you know this is america how you can't make me wear a mask or or whatever it is you know it happens on both sides but that's what a lot of politics is especially the age of social media whoever comes up with the stickiest uh, most alluring construction between the issue that they want to manipulate you on and your innate moral foundations that's the construction that will spread. And so we're witnessing that happening in hyperdrive nowadays. You always
1: end your talks with a little silver lining, or at least a little kernel of hope. Do you still see that now as we're navigating our way through this process about how this moment in time might change the way in which we do or see politics?
0: I do see some some glimmers of hope. I, I the best way I can say it is that I've been incredibly pessimistic about our future for the last five years or so. The trends for our democracy have been downward, and i and I saw no way forward. and I would just cling to the hope that, You know, current trends never continue, things are going to change. And I would say in in my public talks, I'd say, you know, I'm sorry, this has been a really pessimistic talk, but you know what? Um, It's always been wrong to bet against America, and present trends never continue forever. So something's going to happen. It could be something great, it could be something terrible, but something's going to happen that's going to change things. And well, guess what? That something is happening. And you know, right now, the signs are not necessarily that it's going to lead to any kind of civic rebirth, but boy, is it changing things that seemed unchangeable. So, you know, I'm not necessarily optimistic right now, but I actually see more paths forward than I did four months ago. There are gonna be big generational changes. I think millennials and Gen Z will be changed by this in ways that could end up making them um, uh, better citizens or more involved in democracy in positive ways. Um, It is complicated and I can't predict anything specific, but at least there's going to be change. And given the trajectory we were on, (laughs) change is good.
1: Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really, really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure, Amy.
1: Jonathan Haidt is the author of Righteous Mind. We spent a lot of time over the last nine months exploring how the pandemic was changing our electoral process from the way in which we actually cast our ballots to what election day and election night would be like. We spoke to secretaries of state and other election officials across the country, and we talked to two political directors, Rick Klein from ABC and Caitlin Conant from CBS, in order to understand how their networks were preparing to cover what was predicted and proved to be a long and contentious election. A few weeks after the race was called by the AP and the major networks, I sat back down with Rick and Caitlin and also Ben Smith, the media columnist at The New York Times, to hear how they thought things went.
2: I think that, as we discussed last time, that CBS News, and I think most of the networks did this, but we invested time and resources into covering really what was going on at the state level in terms of getting to source up with secretaries of state, know what was happening, what the rules would be, and to prepare and lay the groundwork for the scenario that we did find ourselves in, which is that it was going to come down to michigan wisconsin pennsylvania where we weren't able to call it on election night and because of the way that they processed and counted votes you saw what many described as a red mirage um, which appeared that trump was leading that night because in-person votes a lot of those voters were republican and the mail-in votes which were from urban more populated areas which tended to be democrat it took states longer to count those and i think between our campaign reporters, Major Garrett, we had covered that a lot. um, And I'm curious to hear what Rick says next, but I do think there were a lot of people who hadn't been following the ins and outs of this, like we had, um, who are living and breathing this every day. And I think it turned out that many of them went to bed um, on Tuesday night thinking one thing, and a few days later, there was a different result. Um, And I can't really fault them for that. And I think that what we have to do is continue to explain why that happened um, and to have information out there and have a responsibility to educate. Rick, what about you?
3: Yeah, Amy, I've, I've thought a lot about the conversation that we had on this show a couple of weeks before the election. And I've thought about the the column that Ben wrote a couple of months, maybe before the election, uh, about the way that, that we were preparing for this election. And, and actually... It surprises me that it, it played out almost exactly like we thought it would. Uh, election night itself, in terms of the red mirage and the and the blue the blue shift, uh, that happened, and we said it would happen. We said it a lot on our air. I don't think anything can fully prepare an audience for actually seeing it. We actually made some changes even in, ter- in the in the in the in the guts of our graphics to try to make sure that we weren't. Uh, casting forward a result that was inaccurate and we spent a lot of time on election night hours you know explaining why what you're seeing in terms of the vote coming in isn't necessarily reflective of the final outcome and then we spent days afterward explaining in detail that I have never seen before on a on television broadcasts a, 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 of the intricacies of what our decision desk was thinking and what the results were and weren't and what the legal processes were and um ultimately we were down we were talking about provisional ballots that were cast in a certain way in certain counties in pennsylvania at a level of detail that again if you're watching it, maybe it goes over people's head but i think people are really interested in it and you know we, we spent time on our on, on election night we had someone working demographic boards we had someone with with exit polls we had nate silver in the five Thirty-eight team uh, with their analysis. We were again bringing in the, these different facets of it and explaining to people over the course of several days. Because it wasn't until Saturday that 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 uh, that our network and, and Caitlin's network and, and other major news organizations projected the presidency for Joe Biden. And I'm 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 very gratified to know that we've told every turn of that story, and frankly, that we haven't overreacted to things that the losing candidate has said and done. Um, You know, we we saw this week that, you know, extraordinary 46 minute Facebook posting, highly edited from the White House speech. And, you know, the president of the United States gives what he says is the most important speech of, of his career. Um, and he does it for forty six minutes from the White House. And you know, we covered it as as if it was another, another volley in this. We didn't overreact. We didn't, you know, if you watched David Muir's show that night, you you, you, you know you, you had some light touches around it, but it was basically him giving voice to things that have been disproven in court or that he tweets all the time. It really wasn't that that newsy. And I feel like from our perspective, we've found something of a balance. It's never perfect. It's always difficult in the in the hour by hour. And I'm hopeful that that can continue going forward through this process and then through whatever comes next. Joe Biden will be president on January 20th. We expect that you know if President Trump wants to continue his political career and, and announce for 2024, he's not going to go away. He's still going to be making a lot of noise. I got a text from my mom saying, have you guys thought about how you're going to handle him when he's an ex-president and he does these things? <laughs> because you guys should really think about that. And I'm like, right, OK, mom, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking about those things.
1: Um, Ben, I want you to weigh in one of your columns. You ended by saying the question now is whether the electorate and we in the media can break our addiction to the Trump news cycle. What do you think?
4: I mean, i so I wrote like a pretty panicky column as as Rich referred to in August. um <laughs> like about how we were totally going to screw up the election. And actually I think people, as he said, did a really, and as Caitlin said, did a a pretty good job of being, um, you know, very, very, very explicit and focused on like the mechanics of voting. Um, And, and, you know, and, you know, did as good a job as you can do and still huge chunks of the country don't care and weren't listening. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the, uh, that's, that's sort of the caveat here. Um, I don't know. I do actually think maybe to a degree that I didn't even expect that, Trump's getting a little boring. I mean, I think it's a lot of this, you know, what is news is is a gut sense of what's interesting to you and to your audience. His power is every day seeping away, and it's not as interesting when a former politician tweets crazy stuff as when somebody with enormous power tweets crazy stuff. And he's still the president of the United States. He has enormous power, but you know, I think the sort of constant challenge in the White House was on one hand he's saying these crazy things that are you know that are unlikely to happen and that are out of touch with reality and even with his own administration and yet he's president of the united states um and so you've sort of got to wrestle with that i think when he's not president of the united states it's going to be easier to to dismiss it and it isn't it actually just isn't as interesting and important i mean the important story is going to be his i would say fight for control of the republican party except that he seems to totally control the republican party and there is a political story that you know in the old days of newspapers would live on page a20 about the sort of like ongoing Donald Trump consolidation of power in the Republican Party and who's going to be the RNC chair and what jobs do his kids get. But that's not that big a story.
1: With so much of the 2020 campaign done virtually, Joe Biden was able to avoid much of the traditional back and forth with the press assigned to cover him. Lots of folks criticized the campaign and the media for not pushing harder to get Biden in front of reporters. I asked Ben Smith, Rick Klein and Caitlin Conant about this and how they're recalibrating to cover the new president and administration. Ben speaks first.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's our job to push, right? Like, And I think that there definitely there were times when, I mean, again, people were, also, though, there was a press corps camped out, you know, trying to get questions answered, and Biden was ignoring them. So there's a limit to what you can do there. And also, I mean, you know, Trump was, in fact, incredibly open with the press. Like, he gave long rambling press conferences and answered questions that got shouted at him and reacted constantly on Twitter and, you know, often spoke to his favorite Fox News people, but also his administration just leaked like a sieve, which is great, right? And kind of accustomed us to a level of transparency that I'm sure Biden is going to try to walk back. Um, But it's also just true that Trump is this extraordinary phenomenon and story and was was a bigger story. Biden was was a conventional democrat running with basically conventional democratic policies and it is important to figure out where he stands on police reform but it's within a fairly narrow, you know, it's 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 within the old like, you know, politics being played between the 40-yard lines.
3: I was going to add to that. I mean, I think the degree to which our brains have been rewired uh, by by Trump and the Trump era can't be can't be overestimated. There was a headline in Ben's newspaper Uh, this week, that that reported um, accurately so far as we know that that Joe Biden was not planning to fire the FBI director. And I I thought isn't it? How is that a story? Well, it is a story because Donald Trump did fire the FBI director, but you're not supposed to fire the FBI director. They get ten-year terms. And, you know, Obama kept the FBI director that that he inherited from Bush and gave him an extra two years, in fact. But the fact that we're we now report as news that he won't do something that was that is viewed widely as outrageous and outside, you know, coloring outside the lines tells you how much we're reacting and, and thinking about things differently because of Donald Trump. And that isn't to say that Joe Biden was, you know, give us as much access as we wanted. Ben's right. We were there every day. It was a, it was a pandemic as well. So it was, you know, it was difficult. Uh, It was easier for him to, to, you know, at times, you know, you know, kind of hide away from us because of the nature of, of what we were dealing with. But, yeah, to, to judge Joe Biden by all of the norms that Donald Trump broke, I don't think is fair to Joe Biden or fair to democracy. I, and I think where we have to recalibrate, and I think where our challenge really lies is, is remembering... You know, coming back to where we came at this as journalists, as people who cover politics and, and and believe in the process of of political journalism, that there are norms that that are important to establish. And just because something that Joe Biden does won't be as outrageous, uh, you know, on a scale of one to ten, it won't even register on on the Trump outrage scale, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be covering it. Doesn't mean that we should be asking questions about it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be pointing things out to our to our viewers and our readers. And that that to me is the is the most difficult thing that we're going to wrestle with is that we've had four years, five years plus of, of, of Trump on the national stage that has just changed our, our, our very wiring, uh, the, the way we think uh, about how a president and a White House produces news. Now we're going to go back to something that is going to be far more traditional, but we've got to remember what things were like before Trump.
2: What I expect is news organizations are probably going to beef up their Hill teams and policy teams um, because a lot of news is gonna be breaking at an agency level and what negotiations are happening between the White House and the Senate. And you know, so far I think the transition team seems pretty disciplined and it's a traditional communications operation to the extent that there's squeaky wheels who are leaking news, it's probably gonna be coming from elsewhere. And so I think those are all new things When we've been dealing with, you know, really the principal being the deliverer of all news and making his own decisions every step of the way. And I think that's just going to be something that was normal before. And we're going to see, you know, get accustomed to again. We all know that
1: Donald Trump has dominated political news coverage for the last four plus years, whether in 140 character Twitter bombs, unwieldy press conferences, or campaign events staged at the White House, his ability to be the center of every story and change the narrative, both to his benefit and detriment, has been unprecedented. I asked Ben if he thinks the end of the Trump presidency means politics and political news will go back to being kind of boring.
4: I do think that people have been you know, feel that politics in the United States can go really off the rails, can really change, that this, this the realm of possibility and imagination is much wider than they thought. And it can either be really inspiring if, if you support Trump or really scary if you don't. And I don't think that feeling is going to go away. I think the idea that, you know, politics is like this sport that you can watch for fun, but doesn't really have an impact on your life. Is something that people no longer feel, and that are And when you try to ex- talk about politics that way, I think a lot of our audiences are kind of disgusted by it, actually, the sort of horse race stuff. On the other hand, I think day to day, yeah, I think people are going to not be interested in the negotiations on Capitol Hill and the like, you know outrage that there were only six votes in committee and that's this incredible (laughs) violation then actually we got to switch sides and we're in favor of there being six votes in committee and all this stuff that's so complicated and process driven that it's hard to understand for regular people and also you know the um Hollywood hasn't released any new movie like well there was a, a couple of movies maybe people saw Tenet but that's about it in theaters for a year but there's this huge stockpile of entertainment that is just sitting there in the studios waiting for theaters to reopen for theatrical reopenings production on, tel- on entertainment TV stopped for months in the spring. It is back up and running. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot better content coming out next year than politics and people are going to have a lot to tune into.
1: <laughs> or is it going to be all politics related content? I mean, are there going to be 46 different Trump bi- biopics or are people going to be over so. it? Does
4: anybody want to watch that? I don't, I think we all, I mean, I think Trump sort of defied you know, fiction, right? Like, I know, I don't, I think that there's going to be a ton of like great entertainment coming out next year and people are going to tune out. And then, you know, I mean, all I want to do is read like travel stories for summer 2021.
3: Mm. And, and Amy, I, I, to add on that, I mean, Joe Biden built his campaign on that calculation, essentially, that, that people didn't want to have to worry about the president tweeting in the middle of the night. And like the, uh, Obama said it at a bunch of rallies towards the end, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't have to think about your president every day? And it seems like such a basic thing, but, you know, he has become so much of the the news diet for everybody that uh, and Biden probably benefited, at least on the margins, from the perception that, you know, like him or not, I won't have to worry about him, you know, starting a Twitter war with somebody randomly. And, and just, you know, the, the, that slower pace, it may frustrate us in the news business, because we'd love every White House to leak like a sieve. We'd love to, to you know, the, the palace intrigue stories, they're, they're catnip, they're terrific stories. There's so much great reporting that's happened at, at and around the White House these last couple of years. I mean, just incredible stuff, stuff you never, ever get out of any White House that's come out. And I anticipate there's not going to be anything like it again for a while. The Biden world isn't going to be like that. And we're going to be back to, you know, a much more managed, and we'll be frustrated by it at times. And I, no doubt that White House reporters will, you know, be calling for more access and sound off about things that are, that are walled off. But then, you know, the, 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 Biden team's calculation is well, let's go back to the way things were. And people sort of liked it that way. And if they're not thinking about politics every waking minute, that that's on, on net a good thing.
1: You guys, I could keep this conversation going for a long time, but we don't have forever. But I appreciate it so much. Rick Klein, Caitlin Conant, Ben Smith, thank you guys so much. Great to be with you. Thanks, Amy. Rick Klein is the political director at ABC News. Ben Smith is a media columnist at The New York Times. Caitlin Conant is political director for CBS News.
5: I'm David Remnick, host of The New Yorker Radio Hour.
1: The aftermath of President Trump's 2016 win brought about a lot of soul-searching in the political world. How did the polls get it so wrong? How did reporters miss the signs of political alienation among white working-class voters? Why didn't the Clinton campaign take the threat of losing Wisconsin and Michigan more seriously? Four years and another presidential election later, we have a new Democratic president who will be sworn into office in a few weeks. But a rebuke of President Trump's norm-defying tenure wasn't as dramatic as many had hoped. President Trump distinguished himself in a crowded 2016 primary by running as a populist. He spoke to the problems that many Americans felt the government had failed to adequately address, like an inability to earn a decent wage or pay for health care and higher education. A man who was born rich tapped into the anxieties of working class Americans whose pleas for help were often ignored by leaders of both the Republican and Democratic parties. President Trump brought life back to the Republican Party, and although they may not have welcomed it at first, party leadership has coalesced around Trump's brand of populism. William Howell is a professor in American politics at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, and Terry Moe is a professor of political science at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. They've written a book titled President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy, And I spoke with them about President Trump's lasting impact on our politics.
5: The worry that Terry and I have and the reason why I think we need to continue to pay attention to the hold that populism has on our country is that first, 73 million people voted for the man. Um, And he's doing everything they can to keep them in a continued state of agitation. Uh, And he is carved out a space for populism and taken hold of a major American party, the Republican Party. And most importantly, the foundations that allow for populism to thrive, that is the failures of government to solve problems, persist. And unless we have a government that can solve problems and we don't right now, we're gonna continue to see these entreaties by populists, if not by Trump, then some other surrogate to to resonate broadly in our politics and our democracy is gonna remain really vulnerable. Here, can I jump in? there? Yeah, and just please. Say something? please. Yeah.
6: I mean, one of the uh, big themes of our book is that Trump is the immediate cause of this crisis of democracy that we have in this country. Um, but he's really a symptom of these large, powerful, disruptive socioeconomic forces that have swept the world, globalization, technological change, immigration, that have led to economic harms and cultural anxieties for millions of Americans. Uh, and these are serious problems that our government has done a really ineffective job at dealing with and the result has been a surge of populist anger against a system that doesn't work and support for a strong man donald trump who can attack that system and get things done on his own democracy be damned right and okay so now trump has lost the election and he'll be leaving office. But those big powerful socioeconomic forces, globalization and all the rest are still there. Those economic harms and cultural anxieties are still there. The populist base is still there. And so even though Trump might be moving on, right? All of the rest of it is still there. And this anger with the system is still there. That's the threat to our democracy.
1: So to those who say, you know, well, yeah, he got 73 million votes, but he is one of the only handful of first term presidents to lose reelection. He got 7 million fewer votes than Joe Biden did. And at the same time, we know that the guardrails of democracy, the so-called guardrails, the courts, the state legislatures, the secretaries of state, they didn't bend to Donald Trump's will. They didn't overturn the election results. They stood up to him. So did it work? Did democracy prove that it can stand this stress test?
5: Um, I don't think it's a sort of yes or no. Um,
1: Mm
5: -hmm. The answer is that he didn't obviously have his will. He's not going to be able to undo this election, but he's done extraordinary damage in the aftermath of the election. and frankly throughout his presidency, in pushing back against democratic norms, in marginalizing um, the press, in, um, in violating the rule of law. There are all kinds of damage that he has, that he has done. Um, and it is true that, look, he lost by 7 million votes. That's a big deal. It's also at a time when the economy sort of came out. I mean, the rug was pulled out from under him in the country. I mean, that was, and, and in the aftermath of a pandemic that he managed horribly, and yet nonetheless still managed to secure the votes of 73 million people. And his voice and, and the kinds of entreaties that he's going to levy against an incoming Biden administration aren't going away. Um, and so, sure, he he lost. But that doesn't mean that the uh, pathway for populists to rise to power is is going to disappear. Note, moreover, that the Republicans did mighty well in yeah. Congress. We don't have evidence of a widespread repudiation of Trump here, even mm-hmm. after this catastrophic response to the pandemic.
1: I, I want you all, and, and, and Terry, I'll start with you, to also really dig into this question about what, what is populism? Uh,
6: you know, in, in everyday language, I think people tend to use uh, populism uh, in reference to an ideology that uh, stands up for the little guy, right. uh, supports higher taxes on the rich and so on. Uh, but the way scholars use the term based on historical experience and the way we use it here uh, is very different. Uh, at, at the heart of a populist movement is the belief that they represent the real people of a nation. In the United States, white socially conservative Mm -hmm. Christian people, and they are rising up to attack a corrupt illegitimate system. So populism pits the people against the system and it's less educated white people, especially in rural areas who have been experiencing the brunt of the economic harms that have been imposed by modern times and also who are feeling these cultural anxieties of growing cultural diversity and of immigration. They're the ones that are really rising up and they see themselves as the people here. And the thing is, they rise up within a democratic system and therefore they're attacking democracy. And that's what makes populism so dangerous. It's not just anti-system. It's ultimately anti-democratic.
1: You know, you have some of the analysis after this election about Trump's success with Latino voters, this conversation that we're hearing among Republicans, that they're going to sort of position themselves now as a working class party across racial lines, right, is what Trump had built to to Will's point. It was really about Donald Trump. And that's going to be really difficult to turn into this sort of working people's Republican Party going forward.
6: This is not just about Donald Trump. This is about populism and about Mm -hmm. populist anger and rage against the system. And a lot of that is rooted in this cultural anxiety that is centered in white people losing their predominance in this country historically, losing their grip, it's a white backlash. The Republican party has become a white identity party. And all this business about how they're gonna attract Latinos, they're gonna attract Asians, this this is basically not gonna happen on a grand scale. Trump got a lot of support from the Cubans in Florida because of his anti-Cuba, anti-communist stance. But basically, Latinos in this election voted two to one for Biden, just as they have in the past. And the Republicans remain a white identity party. And demographically, they are up against it. As this country becomes more diverse, they know it. And that's why the Republican Party is not only a populist party now, because Trump has taken it over, or the populists have taken it over, uh, but it's also a party that has to be afraid of democracy, because the more people vote, the more the Republicans lose. And that's why we have voter ID laws and all the rest that are suppressing the vote on the Republican uh, side. They need to suppress the vote in order to keep winning.
1: So let's talk about next steps, you all, because as you pointed out, this isn't just about well, Trump's not here, so now problem solved. It's that the threat of another candidate who's able to come into power as this populist and and really truly do damage, uh, long lasting damage to to our democracy is is still real. Will, why don't you start with sort of looking at what kinds of reforms are needed? As you pointed out, the crux of the problem here is that Americans do not see government working and government's inaction has really helped to fuel this rise in populism. But one reaction might be, okay, well, the way to get government to work and to ensure that we don't have a populist or a demagogue elected is to reduce the power of the executive, make Congress more powerful. But that's an argument that that you all dismissed. So talk about that.
5: So it's worth taking a cue from past kind of historical moments in American history when we've when the country has faced this kind of rising discontent and and faced the threat of populism. We saw that in the 1890s. We saw that again in the 1930s, uh, both in times in the aftermath of significant economic anxiety uh, and a kind of roiling concerns about immigration and industrialization and the like and in both instances we saw concerted widespread efforts uh, with the progressive movement first and then the rise of the new deal second in the 1930s to both modernize government and to address harms that uh, significant portions of the american public were feeling So if you move to the present era and you think, well, what do we do in the face of this? We have to think about how do we build a government that can effectively attend to the very real harms and the very real anxieties that significant portions of the American public feels. And so when you look at issues involving uncontrolled immigration and the fact that somewhere between 10 and 12 million people in this country live without documentation. And you look at the harms associated with globalization and climate change and rising inequality between the rich and the poor and on and on. And you think, where are we going to find the kind of leadership that we need in order to meet these national long-term Uh, Concerns. And the answer we lay out in some detail is in part, we need to find ways to responsibly leverage presidential leadership. Um, This isn't to say that presidents get it right all the time or that presidents should, we should just bow before presidents, decidedly not, but that they provide a different kind of leadership than the more locally oriented, the more kind of parochial sensibilities that we observe within Congress, which as a legislative body is a disaster.
6: Uh, Look, there are very good reasons for fearing presidential power when it's in the wrong hands, when you have an authoritarian inclined president, as we do now. We think that there should be a dramatic cutback in the number of presidential appointees in the executive Mm -hmm. branch. Now, presidents appoint roughly 4,000 people to top-level policy positions throughout the bureaucracy. That's ridiculous, and it's dangerous Um, In other countries throughout the West, uh, very democratic countries, they may have 100 or 200 people at the top of their governments. Um, And so we recommend cutting way back on the number of presidential appointees and having a government that is populated by professionals and experts, right? And that can do the job effectively. Uh, Number two, uh, we think it's really important to insulate The Justice Department and the intelligence agencies to a large extent from direct presidential control.
1: As you all talk to people about your book and you're watching how the country processed this election, Uh how seriously? the country is taking this? I mean, it seems like we have, once again, this conversation does seem to be very bifurcated. There are a group of folks who absolutely agree with everything you have outlined in your writing. And then the other half of the country thinks that you all are just hyperventilating. You're just over-analyzing that there's never been a threat, that you just have hated Donald Trump because you just don't like how he acts. So how do you bring folks, how do you bring a country this divided, even on issues like this, together to to see what could be a very serious threat to our democracy? Or do you just assume we're never going to be unified on this?
5: When you don't have a government that actually works, that sets in motion um, the kinds of uh, pathologies and associated with the rise of populism. It invites people to start talking about conspiracy theories. It invites people Mm -hmm. to say, well, it's all broken, give up on that system, look at me. And it's incredibly corrosive. It makes the kinds of arguments, the deliberation that we really do need to have all the more difficult but just as it underscores the need for those arguments, right? It cuts both ways. You now, as you pointed out, have half the country saying, no, I'm quite all right with uh, having a president who clearly lost the election, insist again and again, all facts to the contrary, that it was stolen and to not call him out. And we have a major American party now who the only people who are are speaking out usually are people who are on their way out We have very few people within the Republican party are willing to speak out. And if this isn't a cause for real alarm and concern, it's hard to know what exactly is, but it also underscores though, the need for this first order conversation about how do we rebuild government? How do we think anew and think imaginatively about the kinds of institutions that we need so that we do a better job of meeting the challenges that stand before us than we have up until now.
6: You're right, I'd uh, like to. Oh yeah, please. No, go ahead. You want me to speak to this? I'd like to.
1: Um, I I am happy to.
6: Okay, good. Look, I I think it's it's important to be realistic about the situation that we face. Um, Polarization is real and has resulted in uh, tribalism in our politics. And people are dug in on both sides. Also, it's reinforced by the propaganda network on the right. Fox News is at the center of that. Uh, They have tens of millions of people who are siloed in that propaganda network and that simply reinforces um the populist anger and grievance and so it's not as though this is the kind of thing that can simply be overcome by a president who claims uh, to be unifying the nation so this is something that needs to be overcome in part by simply winning elections and making sure that populist demagogues don't take on the presidency again that's number one number two with the Biden presidency, it's really important for them to pursue programs like jobs programs and childcare and healthcare programs and uh, immigration reform that can help to meet the needs of at least some portion of these less educated white populist constituents and win back enough of them so that the Republicans have a very hard time winning elections going forward. And we have to put that together with institutional reforms that make the government more effective going forward. And so I think these kinds of things can help to eat away at the populist base. And when that begins to happen there, I think the Republicans are just in real trouble when you combine that with the demographic trends. And that's what we need going forward.
1: Well, Terry and Will, I thank you both for coming on and taking the time to walk me through your book, and I wish you both the best of luck, and please stay safe and healthy. Thanks,
5: Amy. Hey, thank you great, very much. Great to talk to you.
1: That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Irungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.